Father, thanks for the opportunity to be still this morning, to sit in your goodness, to reflect on you. Spirit, would you teach us from your word this morning, God? Would you give us eyes to see the things you want us to see, ears to hear the things that we need to hear, hearts to be transformed into your likeness? And would these conversations not end today with this series, but continue on to help us see and recognize pride and shame as unhelpful in our following you. And God, would you, by the power of your spirit, your word, your community, would you put those things to death so that we continue to grow in you and mature in you? We need you to do it in and through us. We ask it in your son's name. Amen. My senior year of college, I was heading to class and it was raining. I went to school at the University of Arizona down in Tucson, and the, the, the city system, because it's in the desert, it's not really set up for rain. And if you're familiar with being in the valley or anywhere in Arizona, when the rain comes, especially in early August or September, it, man, the monsoon, it just dumps. And so I'm driving to class. I'm kind of late to class, and so I'm kind of in a hurry, and I turn down this side street because I know it's a shortcut to get me to the parking lot closest to where my class is, and as I turn down the street, um, I see um, water. Now, I don't know how deep the road goes. I don't know how much water there is. I'm going, man, if I have to turn back around, I'm definitely going to be late to class. It's going to be inconvenient to go the other way, Um, and every single movie I've ever seen the action hero just drives right through the water, and they're fine. So I'm just like, okay, I'm going to take it. I'm going to go for it. I had a little Honda Prelude, and I start driving, and it was way deeper than I thought. And so as I'm driving through, if you know anything about cars, the, the water just got sucked up into my engine, and it just locked it, and it just killed my car. The engine was just done in that moment. And because I didn't want to be inconvenienced, I didn't want to go around, and because I didn't have a knowledge of how deep it was, and because, again, I was culturally formed by just, you just drive through. I've never seen a movie where the the hero drives through and the car just stops because the water gets sucked into the engine. That's ridiculous. That's not true. But it was true. So as we've been talking about this series called Mature in Christ, We've been asking ourselves the question for these last four weeks and then this week, um, what are the things, as we look at Paul talking in Colossians 1.28, as he says, I'm warning and teaching with all wisdom so that I can present you mature in Christ. What are the things that the water that will suck up into the engine of our heart and stop us in our relationship with Jesus? That will knock us off course, that will stunt our growth in our relationship with Jesus. And what we've talked about, and there could be many things, but what we've landed on in our conversations here as a community is that pride and shame are those things we want to continue to have conversations with this year, with each other. And so we're trying to give language and framework, not solve the problem. There's no way we can do it in 35 minutes on a Sunday, even if it's five Sundays in a row, but begin to have the conversation with each other. Man, how do we see pride show up? How do we see shame show up in a bad way? We were in the community that we're a part of last week, and we just had really fruitful conversations about how we saw shame show up, even in childhood. Even as parents, man, how are we shaming our kids? And what voices are they hearing? What's a healthy version of of loving? And what does that look like for us? How does that knock us off course? If you're new, we've been talking and defining pride as like, um, you're good enough without God. 
You can do it on your own. You're better than, and how that is a dangerous, dangerous place to be as you're trying to follow Jesus. And for me, as I look at the dashboard of my heart, when I start defending myself, when I start comparing myself to others, there's probably pride going on in my heart. We also talked about shame. And if pride is about doing it on your own without God, shame is really this nagging sense that I'm just, I'm not good enough. I can't be loved. And if pride leads to defending and comparing, then shame leads to hiding. Like, where are you hiding from God? Not being fully honest, not being fully known. Where are you hiding from each other? And how those things are dangerous as we attempt to follow Jesus. They'll knock us off course again. They'll, they'll, the, the, the water will suck up into the engine of our heart and it will lock us and push us away from our relationship with Jesus. Pride is really about this kind of performing where shame can be kind of, kind of pretending. I'm, I'm not really who I am. I'm kind of hiding behind you. And we talked in the last couple of weeks, why do we hide from God? And then last week we talked about like, why do we hide from each other? And what we're going to talk about this morning as we kind of wrap this series is how do we come out of hiding for healing? What does it actually look like to be fully known and fully loved? Can we even experience that? What does that look like? How do we have some good guardrails in our life for that? How do we not perform? How do we not pretend? How do we be fully honest? And where we're going to go today is just the idea that we need to learn how to practice vulnerability. We need to learn what it means to practice vulnerability. Now, vulnerability has been a word historically that's been negative. It's like nobody wants to be vulnerable because if you're vulnerable, then that, that leaves you at risk for being hurt. So you cover up, you protect, you put on masks. And historically, that's been the case when that word gets used until about 15 years ago when somebody named Brene Brown did this little TED Talk and it just exploded. And she talked about practicing vulnerability as a researcher and, and, and being wholehearted. There's, there's a degree of learning how to take risks and practice vulnerability. And so now vulnerability is kind of like a cool thing to do, at least on some levels. And so let me just define when I'm using the word vulnerability, how I'm using it this morning and how we, I think, need to practice it here in the midst of our community. Because it's been kind of a buzzword, and, and we can kind of overcorrect sometimes, I don't mean using vulnerability for control purposes. Because some people do that. They, they say, okay, if it's to be fully known, I'm just going to tell you all my stuff, and I'm going to kind of floodlight, like all, like I'm just going to, and then I have kind of control of the conversation. I'm not talking about that. Or as Chuck DeGroat says in his book, Phonerability, you can, you can say all the right words and it, it seems like you're really being really open, but you're really not. I'm talking about vulnerability, not for the sense of control, but for the sense of connection. To say, I want to be fully known and I realize I'm hiding myself on some level from you. And what the gospel tells us is that we can actually be fully ourselves, be fully known, and be fully loved because of the cross. There's no other place that promises that. And so what does it look like for us to move forward in practicing vulnerability to come out of hiding for healing? I've been quoting Kurt Thompson throughout this series. Um, I just recommend anything he, he writes. He has a podcast. This is, again, from his book, The Soul of Shame. This is what he says. He says, the healing of shame begins and ends in the experience of being known. A biblical notion that begins in the heart of God is offered to humans in Genesis and reaches its culmination on Good Friday. 
Healing shame requires our being vulnerable with other people in embodied actions. There is no other way, but shame will try to convince us otherwise. And we talked last week about how we hide from each other. Man, I don't want to be vulnerable with you because what is your reaction going to be? If it's negative, it's just safer to hide. And in hiding, I'm not really being fully myself. I'm not being fully known and I'm not being fully loved, but it seems like a, a more protective and a safer place to be. And what we're saying is it's actually not. It might seem safer, but you're not really experiencing God's grace. You're not really experiencing the grace of others in the midst of that, and you're not really being known. And so we want to come out of that hiding for healing. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Luke 18. We're going to be spending our time there as we wrap up the series, uh, verses 9 through 23 is what we're going to look at, and what we'll see in the text in three different scenarios that will be painted in front of us. We're going to see three things. The first we're going to see is that pride kills vulnerability. The second, that humility bursts vulnerability. And the third, surrender sustains vulnerability. Pride kills it. Humility bursts it. Surrender sustains it to be fully known and fully loved so the first point pride kills vulnerability this is luke chapter 18 starting verse 9 this is jesus speaking he says uh, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else jesus told this parable two men went up to the temple to pray one, a Pharisee. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that language, a Pharisee was the religious leader of the time, the pastor, the religious leader, the rabbi. And the other, a tax collector. Tax collectors were viewed uh, not good in the society. They were the crooked politicians, the street workers. They, they were not viewed well. So these two folks go up to the temple to pray. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. So let's stop there just for a second. Let's look at this, this religious leader and how he prays to God. He's praying things. If you look at the text in verse 12, what does he do? He practices justice in verse 11. He has sexual purity. He, he practices the discipline of fasting. He practices the discipline of giving. Those are all good things and right things to do that ought to form and shape us into the way of God. But the problem is he's comparing himself to the other, and he's comparing the works he does, that's what gives him his righteousness, his right standing before God. He stands up and basically says, I'm, I'm good. Look at all that I'm doing. I'm doing, I'm glad I'm not like that person, but I'm doing great. It's this idea of self-righteousness. If that's what it looked like for people to be self-righteous in their day, what does it look like for us today? What do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility, validity, acceptance, good standing with God and others? That if you do this thing, you feel, you feel pretty good. You feel pretty good in your relationship with God. And you feel pretty good because you compare yourself to everybody else. And you go, well, I know what they did. And I, I, I read my Bible nine times this week, and they only read it eight. So, <laughs> right? What do we do to give us a sense of personal validity, self-righteousness, good standing with God, good standing with others. 
There's a Bible study called The Gospel-Centered Life by World Harvest Mission. We've done it a couple times in in different settings, and I I would highly recommend it. Um, And they talk in session two about this idea of self-righteousness. And what does self-righteousness look in our context? what What are some ways that it shows up in sneaky ways when we rely on what we do to give us our sense of worth? Here's a list that they use that I think is helpful language. The first one they talk about is job righteousness. I'm a hard worker, so God will reward me. And I'm just gonna run through about 10 of these. The second, family righteousness. Because I do uh, the right things as a parent, I'm more godly than the parents who can't control their kids. And you know those parents, right? You're silently judging them, going like, oh my gosh, you see that kid over there? Right? Uh, you, you have a righteousness because you're on top of it. You do the right thing with your kids. How about theological righteousness? I have good theology. God prefers me over those who have bad theology. I mean, our church, we're... We're, man, we're doctrinally sound here. Down the street, that other, oh, come on, man. We really have it together, right? Theological righteousness. Intellectual righteousness. I am better read, more articulate, uh, more culturally savvy than others, which obviously makes me superior. I can read in five languages, you know? Like I'm clearly, clearly, I know what I'm doing. How about schedule righteousness? I'm self-disciplined. I'm rigorous in my time management, which makes me more mature than others. Man, I struggle with that one. Ooh, I'm never late. I'm always showing up early and feeling like, oh, okay, I'm always on time. Why can't you get it together? Why can't you show up on time? Right? Schedule righteousness. Flexibility righteousness. In a world that's busy, I'm flexible and relaxed. I always make time for others. Shame on those who don't. You're late because you care more about that thing than being with that person. How about mercy, mercy righteousness? I care about the poor and disadvantaged the way everyone else should. Why don't you care about the poor? I clearly do. I have righteousness in that way. Legalistic righteousness. I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or date those who do. Too many Christians just aren't concerned about holiness these days. Financial righteousness. I manage my money wisely. I stay out of debt. I'm not like those materialistic Christians who can't control their spending. How about political righteousness? If you really love God, you'll vote for my candidate. Tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable toward those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus in that way. Now, we use these categories to elevate ourselves and make us feel better about our standing with God and with other people. These categories are not wrong. Financial integrity is not wrong. Scheduling is not wrong. Uh, Reading and having intellectual problems, that's not wrong. But when we use it as our righteousness, when we use it as our, our validity for our relationship with God, I'm doing really good with God, and oh man, I'm doing really good with other people. When we do that, that's when we get into danger like this Pharisee that Jesus is talking about as he goes and he goes to pray to God. Well, not only does Jesus describe the Pharisee, he also describes the tax collector. Look look back at the text, verse 13. Jesus continues, he says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
Verse 14, Jesus says, now, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. We just sang that song, Lord, have mercy. And if we found yourself, if you found yourself singing that song, and you're going like, Lord, you need to have mercy on that person. You're like the Pharisee. Lord, I'm good, but Lord, have mercy on my my brother-in-law or have mercy on this person. They they just, oh man, they just don't get it, but I clearly get it. We need to be aware of our self-righteousness. It's in all of us. And again, it's invisible, and we think, oh man, the water's not as deep as it is. I should be good. And we need to recognize that the cross is the only thing that gives us our righteousness, The gospel and what Jesus has done for us, that's the only way we attain our righteousness, not based on our behavior, but based on his sacrifice. That's what's true in the gospel. We need to be aware that our pride will kill our growth in Jesus, our self-righteousness. It'll cripple it. It'll take it off course. And we need to ask God's spirit to expose in us those ways we get our righteousness other than the cross. And we need to turn and change. So pride kills vulnerability to be fully known, fully loved. Um, Humility births vulnerability. If pride kills it, uh, humility births it. Let's continue in the text, verse 15. It says, people were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place in his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who did not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Some of you guys, about a year ago, we did uh, a Praying Life seminar with our partner, See Jesus. And many of you guys are in the School of See Jesus. It's a discipleship program that we're in the midst of. That's about a nine-month track. And so you've heard this this example and the way they kind of unpack this part of the text. And what they do in the seminar is uh, when they go to to the text, they use actually the text of Mark, not Luke, but they, they just talk about like when you think of a child, what words come to mind? And they have their iPad, and they're writing up all, it's just kind of brainstorming. And, and, and so the, the whole page gets filled up with like, what, what actually describes a child? And some of the language that always comes up in, these, in this, this time is, man, kids are, kids are cute, and they're exhausting, and they're noisy, and they're dependent, and they're fun, and they're curious, and they're playful, and they're joyful, and they're draining. And the whole page fills up with these descriptions of, of, of kids, of children, And then we go, okay, if you could sum all these words up into one word, almost every time it fits this word, mess. Kids are a mess. For good and and bad, they're they're just messy. They're just a mess. Little kids, they're learning who they are. They're, they're, They're a mess. And so... They take they put the text back up and 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 taking out the word children, they put in mess. Let's read it. Again, it says the people were bringing messes to Jesus for him to place his hands on. When the disciples saw them, they rebuked the mess. But Jesus called the mess to him and said, let the mess come to me and do not hinder the mess. For the kingdom of God belongs to such a mess. 
Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a mess will never enter into it. I remember the first time I sat through that exercise with see Jesus, and it felt like a weight lifted off my shoulders. Because I, don't, I, I, I honestly, like I can say, yes, of course, God wants me to be messy and honest, but I don't really believe that. I feel like I have to clean myself up to go to God. I feel like, ah, he's not going to accept me if I just come all messy and kind of gnarly. And what this is saying is Jesus is saying, this is a prerequisite to enter the kingdom is to be a mess. And can we just all admit, we're all a mess. Can we start there? We just, can we just agree that we're all really jacked up? Because you come in here and I have conversations with some of you and you go, man, I, I just, I don't even know if I can be in this situation. I look at that family and they just look perfect. They're perfectly dressed. Like they really know the Bible. They, and I'm talking to that family. That family's a mess. Just like you are a mess. Just like I am a mess. And if we're humble enough to just be honest, just be like, I'm a mess. I need Jesus as much now as when I first gave my life to him. It's not my self-righteousness or I've figured it all out after coming to him and getting my salvation. No, no, I need him every single day. The gospel needs to be true every single day in my life. My son and I were watching the GCU game, basketball game yesterday. And, and this phrase got thrown out by one of the commentators. And I just realized how much I dislike this phrase. And, and it might be semantics. So maybe you use this phrase. So this isn't like, um, but, but uh, he, the commentator said like, um, you have to fake it till you make it. You got to fake it until you make it. And usually when that gets used in the context of like a job or whatever, it's like if they ask you to do something you, and you have like this self-doubt, like, I don't know if I can do it but I just won't say anything and I'll just pretend and then that skill will catch up to me in time so that I can, I can continue to get the job or he was talking in the context of basketball like, oh, he should have done this move and just kind of, even if he couldn't do it, he should fake it until he makes it. I don't like that phrase at all because it just implies you're not being honest. You're not being real because you felt like, oh, I can't really be who I am. I can't really be myself. And unfortunately, it feels like even in the church culture, we kind of have this spiritual like fake it till you make it attitude with each other because we've stepped out. Like you've stepped out and said something and then you get the like looks like, oh. And you go, well, I don't like that feeling. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to play it back here, and I'm not going to really be honest because this community is supposed to be grace-filled, but it, it doesn't f feel that way very much. And we do this in all sorts of ways, right? Maybe you're in a group, and, and you hear people praying, and they sound super spiritual. You go like, oh, no, I'm not praying. Man, because I don't, I don't know. They just prayed some kind of holy, I don't know. And so that you just don't say anything or you go, I'm never going to that meeting again because it just, ah, uh, or you kind of fake it. How about when we pass the peace to each other and we turn around and we greet somebody and it's like, man, you're sitting in the same spot every single week. And you turn around and you go, I should know your name, but I don't, hey, bud, hey, champ, ha, ah, you know, like we, <laughs> we just fake it. We just fake it until we make it because we don't want to hurt their feelings. And again, it can come from a good place a lot of times instead of just going like, you know what, I should know your name and I don't. 
Could you remind me? Could, you, could we have the humility to begin to just be honest with one another in our, in, in our shortcomings, in our failures, and just go like, oh, man, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't know. Could you, could you help? And, and I'm, I'll probably forget next week too, you know, right? Let's be a community of not faking it until we make it so that we can be honest. But that takes humility. That takes our identity being rooted in Jesus and not in what you think of me. And that takes work. That takes maturing. And that's what we're talking about. That's what we'll continue to talk about in this process of humility leading the way in that conversation. Because again, in our, in our, in our subculture of the church, it, it feels like we've kind of created this kind of culture of perceived perfection. We have to act this way. We've got to dress this way. We've got to act this way, you know, like so, so that we're good. And then we kind of, kind of walk in with all of our masks on. And then we're not fully known. And we're going, let's, let's not do that. Let's not play that game. I mean, what are we doing? <laughs> let's not do that. Can we all agree that it's only the cross? It's only Jesus that gives us our worth, gives us our valid standing with God and with each other. And then that gives us the freedom to go, ah, dude, I'm sorry. I screwed up. I messed up. And not feel like, oh, well, you let me down again. Dang it. Just like, well, I'm a mess. I don't know about you. I'm a mess. If we can all agree that we're all a mess, that's going to help the process, right? To go like, and, and let me just give a caveat here. Um, this doesn't, I don't, I, I want to make sure I'm clear on this. This doesn't um, allow you to continue your ongoing sin. <laughs> like, and go, well, I, Pastor John just said, I'm just a mess. And it's like, well, come as a mess in humility, but God's not going to leave you in that mess. He's going to go, okay, let's, let's figure this out. There's a better way to do this. Let's walk together in our messiness and trust that Jesus is going to hold us and that he wants something better for us. Pride kills vulnerability. Humility bursts vulnerability. And then the last section, surrender, sustains our vulnerability. Go back to the text, verse 18, next part of the story. A certain ruler asked him, asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All of these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Other places in the other gospels, they talk about the, the, the rich young ruler. He, he walks away. He doesn't follow Jesus. Why is he sad in this moment? Why does this rich young ruler become sad? What is Jesus doing as he loves this young man in real time? He's exposing what really brings him his security. He's exposing the idols of his heart, the things he's still holding on to as he does all these things in pursuit of God. And what Jesus is doing in this loving moment is he's calling him to surrender. He's calling him to surrender. What area of your life do you really need to surrender to Jesus? 
You can be like this rich young ruler. You can do all the things on the outside. You can come to church. You can go to your community. You can read your Bible. You can do all these good things that this guy's going, I've done this since I was a child. But you have this one area that you go, ah, God, don't touch that. That's too precious to my heart. It can often be good things that we can turn into idols. It could be our spouse. It could be our kids or the thought of kids going, okay, God, you could do whatever you want. I'm going to do all these right things, but don't, don't let me give this thing up. And Jesus is going, if you don't give, like, because you're going, this is, this is such a, a, a part of my heart. Like, this man's wealth was such a part of his identity, such a part of his heart. And Jesus is going, until you release that to me, until you surrender that to me, you're never really going to understand what it means to follow me. And we all have these things in our heart that we need the Spirit to continue to reveal to us, oh, I'm holding on too tight to that thing. I need to surrender it. And we go, I can't even imagine surrendering that thing that I love so much. And Jesus is saying, if you can't surrender it, you love it more than you love me. And that's not the way we're meant to follow Jesus. It's incongruent. It will block us. It will knock us off course. If we don't have an open hand to surrender everything to Jesus. The position of surrender, this open-handedness, it's, it's actually the most vulnerable position you can be in. Because it just exposes you to things that are getting taken away that you love so much. It exposes you to a potential of pain, of hurt, of this, this illusion of control and power that, like, I have to give this thing up. This is kind of what makes me feel safe. And Jesus goes, no, you need to give it to me. In the kingdom, there is not this self-safety it is about hiding in Christ like we sang about this morning and we talked about this morning. It's about going like, Jesus, even though I love this thing so much, I want to trust you in faith. I want to surrender it to you. And you surrender. And then you surrender again. And then all of a sudden the spirit goes, actually, you're holding on too tight to this one thing. I want you to put it back on the altar. And I want you to surrender it again. And you go, okay. You have to do it in me. I don't even know if I can let go of it. And that's why we need God's people around us to go, hey, you should let go of this. You're holding on to it too tight. You think it's not that big a deal. You're just going to drive through the water, and it's not going to be any problem. And then all of a sudden, that water is going to lock up into the engine of your heart, and it's going to stall it, and it's going to break it. And we're going, no. Let's warn each other. Let's teach each other what it means to continually surrender the things that are closest to our heart so that we can follow Jesus. The willingness to step in to things that don't have guarantees. Those are hard. Those are painful. Way easier just to, I'm, I just want to calculate my next move so I don't get hurt. But what Jesus calls to in this surrender, this state of vulnerability is to step into places that are not guaranteed. It's to leave your old job and start a new business and go, I don't know if this is going to work or not. This feels scary, but I feel like God's pushing me in this direction. It means having the conversation with somebody that might be hard and awkward and strange and go, actually, you really hurt me. And you don't know how they're going to respond to that. Or I, I, I need you to forgive me. I, I really wronged you. And you don't know how they're going to respond to that. But you're vulnerable. You're surrendered in this state and going, okay, Lord, this is what I feel like you're calling me to do. It's to go into your redemption community, your small group, and go, you know what? I'm really struggling with believing that God's good today. I really, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time with that. 
And even if they go, how could you? And we talked about this last week. Don't try and fix people. Try and listen. Try and have empathy with each other in the midst of the community. Because again, some of our spaces, we've done that. And people try to fix us with good hearts. And then we go, I'm not securing that again. Doesn't feel safe in here. But safety is based on your relationship with Jesus, not based on your community. And so we have to step into those spaces and be honest. Because if we're not honest, we're just playing a game. And we're not really fully known and we're not really fully loved. The ultimate act of surrender, the ultimate act of vulnerability is found in the person of Jesus. As he loves us, as we, we just celebrated Christmas. Jesus leaves this perfect relationship with the Father and the Son, this perfect environment in heaven where there is not sin, and he comes down to us, and he shows up in the most vulnerable way possible as a baby in a manger. He could have showed up when he was 30, done his ministry, done his thing, gone back. No, he shows up in the most vulnerable state of surrender, and then he walks the human life to understand who we are, to identify with us. He doesn't start his ministry right away. He slowly is patiently waiting on the Father's timetable. So I'm going to keep waiting. I'm going to keep trusting. He shows vulnerability as he begins his public ministry. And the religious leaders want to kill him because of what he says and what he does and how he's pressing up against their pride, against their control, against their shame. And the ultimate act of vulnerability is Jesus goes to the cross on your behalf, on my behalf. He literally gets all the way vulnerable. He's stripped naked and beaten, nailed to a cross. And in the midst of that, he is left by the Father for that moment. As the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus on the cross, he's fully known and he's not fully loved in that moment. Why? So that we can be fully known and fully loved because of the cross. That's the only promise you're going to get is from the pages of Scripture and the gospel that you can be fully known and you can be fully loved because what Jesus' sacrifice has done for you as the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus on the cross and you exchange your life for his and you give your life to Jesus, now the Father looks through the blood of Christ at you and says, I love you. Not based on your behavior, your self-righteousness, but based on what Jesus has done on the cross. And he gives us a sense of freedom. It gives us a sense of freedom to move forward. Man, again, I just, we're praying as a team here as leaders at Redemption Peoria that, that again, this would not be the end of the conversation about pride and shame, but it would be the beginning of it. That as we go into homes with one another, that we spend time with one another, that we would ask God to pop the hoods of our hearts and get in there and do some work and go like, man, where am I defending? Where where am I comparing? Where am I hiding? Like, let's start talking about that and go, God, we are all a mess and we need you. We need the gospel every single day to make us well, to heal us. That's only going to be a work of the Spirit in the context of God's word and his people And we want to continue to have those conversations with you. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your vulnerability at the cross as we see Jesus stepping moment by moment as he trusts his Father's timing and plan, as he articulates his honesty about if there's any other way, but not my will, Lord, but your will be done. Father, help us 
Would you kill the pride in us, the comparison in us, the defending in us? Would you help us, Spirit, be a mess in humility? Give us language to admit where we're wrong. And Father, help us continually surrender to you moment by moment as we come down to the table this morning. Every week, may it be a continual surrender to where we get our worth, not from our own self-righteousness, but from the righteousness of your work on the cross. God, would you guide our time of response together? We love you, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.